Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today, we have Dr. Donna Ferguson, who is a part of the Not Suicide, Not Today initiative uh, started by CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health up there in Canada, our, our neighboring friends. Uh, Dr. Donna Ferguson is a clinical psychologist in CAMH's work stress and health program. For nearly 20 years, she has been helping employees who have experienced mental health challenges return to work. Dr. Ferguson provides assessment and treatment, specifically cognitive behavioral therapy for those involved in work-related incidents that adversely affect their mental health, including first responders and other injured workers who have experienced trauma on the job. With extensive clinical and research experience in post-traumatic stress disorder, Dr. Ferguson considers suicide prevention a critical part of her work. In addition to helping develop the protocol for suicide risk assessment in her team's clinic at CAMH, Dr. Ferguson leads the orientation about suicide risk for new students and staff in the clinic. Today's episode is a doozy. You guys are going to really love it. We talk about suicide prevention we talk about uncovering the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder and not just the overt signs the covert signs those the the things that um that are small little paper cuts that we're not aware of we think it's no big deal but then they become something bigger because it starts to gain momentum and then by the time we recognize it out of control so we talk about all those different signs. And we also obviously talk about the coping strategies for people who are struggling with uh, PTSD. And also we talk about compassion fatigue. Yeah. Oh, do you know what that is? Oh, you do? You do? Nah, nah, you don't. No, you don't. So you got to listen. You got to tune in. You got to tune in if you want to get some of that compassion fatigue knowledge because uh, it's something that, that, that I learned and I, I had no idea it was a thing. And also, if you're working graveyard shifts and swing shifts, we talk about that and, and how to take care of yourself if you are uh, burning the midnight oil. I used to work a graveyard shift, and it was brutal. Um, and we talk about so much more. So kick back, relax, enjoy. And as always, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. There's no need for you to, to go through your, your struggles alone. Reach out to somebody. If not me, call the 1-800-SUICIDE number. There are tons of free resources listed in the show notes. With that said, let's jump into the episode. Just to get started, what what, what do you do? What, what's your role up there at CAMH? I'm a clinical psychologist. And I've been working in an outpatient clinic. It's called the Work Stress and Health Program uh, for the last uh, 17 years. So I do a lot of assessment and treatment and supervision. Um, I'm quite busy. And so it, it seems like, and then is one of your focuses, is it focuses or foci? I, I can never remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it, <laughs> foci is good. Is it uh, first responders and PTSD? That's correct. Yeah, that's primarily what we do. And, and what's, um, how does that show up differently uh, and first responders then say in uh, military service people? 
Oh, wow. Good question. Um, it, it actually can show up very similarly as it does with military personnel. So uh, I guess depending on what you do, let's say you're a police officer um, that might actually look more similar to the military personnel. Um, but any first responder who is responding to events um, where there might be what we call cumulative trauma, so where they are experiencing more than one traumatic event over time, uh, it, can, it can actually look quite similar on, on, on both sides. So whether you're a firefighter, you are um, paramedic, a uh, police officer, um, military, that, you know, cumulative trauma is cumulative trauma, and it, it can actually have a similar or the same toll. Uh, so uh, when we talk about trauma, because that, that's a word that seems to be trending right now, it's, it's interesting mm -hmm. how there's certain uh, uh, psycho, uh, mental health terms that seem to, to catch on, and trauma is one of those, uh, like trigger, et cetera, et cetera. When we how are we defining trauma? Is it what happens to you or is it the perception of what's happening to you? Does that question wow. make sense? Great question. Great question. It, it is actually, it, it's both, but really it's focused on the perception because you can have two people who've experienced the same trauma, traumatic event, and they will react or respond differently. One might go on to develop traumatic stress disorder. The other might just have the symptoms and that they'll, they'll sort of just dissipate with or go away with time. And so both individuals have experienced the same event and yet react differently and become traumatized differently. So that the perception of that event for a variety of reasons can, can actually make a difference. Yeah, I have a friend who's a, a police officer in Chicago and he will tell me the most heinous stories about uh, a situation he's walked into and and what he saw and what he found and and I was like how do you how do you handle that how do you just tell me that story and then finish eating your burger and <laughs> wow and he'll just be like it is what it is mm -hmm. and that's how he copes with it all he's just like it is what it is just it's just life you know yeah yeah um and it seems to help him I, I don't know if that's a zen way or if that's a numbing way or um, it sounds like you're going to say something. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting that you say that because I do think that that's that's we we call that in a way is sort of necessary, but also avoidant coping in some ways. So for some people, actually, that's actually quite effective. They just have to keep going on to the next event and just cope with it, deal with it. They don't have time to process or or wallow in it. And in some ways, that can be quite effective for people. But generally speaking, over time, it, it can also take a toll. And that's why we call, sometimes we, we call trauma cumulative trauma, because it's not just the one event or two events. Sometimes it's, it's the, the 15th event, or sometimes it's the, 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 the impact of that last or second last event um, that, that it takes a toll. And so it's hard to know which event's going to be which. But it's hard to kind of go through that situation over and over again and not be impacted by it in some way. Yeah, because, you know, I would imagine that when you're a first responder, you, you're deciding to become a cop or EMT, um, you know, even a nurse, like you're only thinking about the idea of saving lives and helping right. people. And, and 
but you're you're never really thinking, and I would imagine for most people about what you'll have to expose yourself to in order to save lives and, and the scenarios that you're going to walk in on. Right. And right. so what kind of, is there a certain uh, personality type or profile of a person that even goes into, uh, who, who wants to become a first responder? And, and does that affect also uh, how they handle PTSD or trauma? That's a good question. I, I, I can't say for, I can speak for everyone, but I do think that that's, that some people do go into that area or that field because sometimes there's something in their past where they wish um, somebody would have helped them or they really feel like the need to help other people. They feel, they feel that push, you know, because of something in their past, um, which then can predispose them as well at the same time to you know, experiencing trauma later on. So, you know, you can have somebody who, you know, may have had some childhood trauma or a difficult past or childhood adversity in some way, not, not everyone, I'm just in some cases. And, you know, they, it, it sort of propels them into the first responder field. And then, um, unfortunately it also, you know, can predispose them to developing PTSD at the same time. So, I think there, you know, there's there's some positive and negatives about about people like this who, you know, seek out to become a first responder. But then, you know, the the drawback is is that sort of later on that it can also become a risk factor. Um, in terms of uh, risk factors, what are we what are we looking at there uh, when we think about risk factors for someone who will experience PTSD? versus someone who won't? Mm, good question. You know, there's a number of risk factors. Some include, like I, I just mentioned, you know, past trauma, um, past difficulties or childhood adversity or, or challenges in childhood, um, challenges in your own relationship, uh, predisposition or vulnerability, or even uh, diagnosis of depression, anxiety. Um, they also say that, uh, you know, how the close... the Closer proximity, I guess, to the, the traumatic event can also be a risk factor. So how, how close they were to it. Some people might have had more vicarious exposure and some people might have had direct exposure. Well, di direct exposure can, can also be a risk factor. Um, again, perception, how, how they cope, resilience and, and how they cope with, with the events in terms of how they perceive the event. And how they cope with the event is also a risk factor. So if there are challenges with coping strategies even prior to the trauma, then this could be a risk factor as well. There's a number of factors. Yeah, I would also imagine, I mean, first responders are working crazy hours. So, you know, usually they're doing like 12 or 14-hour shifts. You have police uh, firemen who are like three days on, four days off, something like that. And yeah. then if you, if you throw on having a swing shift, night shift on top of being on call, uh, is it, the, the field is just ripe for producing uh, anxiety disorders. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you're working those kinds of shifts, you're working night shifts. I've had police officers that I've, I've treated who really struggled with night shifts, especially when they were starting to, to, to become anxious and were dealing with some traumatic events. And it really sent them over the edge where they weren't sleeping well. If you're not sleeping well, you're not coping well, you're right. It, it really 
it, it you know leads it can lead to anxiety, can lead to depression. That can be a risk factor to develop PTSD. So you know how how they work. Um, you know again event after event. Sometimes they just finish one traumatic event. You haven't even had enough time to debrief or process, and then you're on to the next. And this is also challenging in those jobs. What now? When we talk about PTSD, what are some of the symptoms? Uh, can we like? What would some of the milder symptoms of PTSD and then what are some of the more extreme symptoms? Because we only, you know, in the media and news, we only see the the most extreme of depression, bipolar. But I I think if we're able to catch these more subtle symptoms of, uh, of PTSD, we can get help sooner versus wait until it gets out of control. And now it's, it's hard to rein it in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the um, sort of initial symptoms that you might see that that might feel a bit milder for some people um, are just even irritability. You know, you might actually react to things that you wouldn't react to normally. You know, you might be snapping at your partner or your kids. Um, You know, it might be subtle, but it's, it's slowly happening. You might not be motivated to do things you used to do. You might not want to see friends, be social, be with family. You might just sort of you know, recluse to the bedroom, um, you know, eat and then, you know, hide away, may not want to get out of bed sometimes, um, some days and, you know, just, you know, be, you know, really tired, fatigued. Um, So these are some things that might come up initially that you might not flag, but you might start to see patterns of these things happening and say, hey, you know, if you've got someone who, who sees you, knows you, connects with you and say, hey, you okay? What's going on? Because these are some signs and things that you can, you can actually get on before it becomes more extreme, as you mentioned. Um, you, you talked about sleep in, in terms of being one of the coping skills. What are some of the healthy uh, coping strategies and skills that uh, you recommend? And then what are some that... Um, was like so specific to a person um, that you were like, oh, I, you know, that that worked. That's crazy. Uh, for example, um, I had a, um, a military guy who he couldn't sleep at night and he had all the right conditions. You know, he had the blackout curtains. Mm-hmm. It was cool, blah, blah, blah. But then he realized uh, it was silence. That's why he couldn't sleep because silence to him denoted uh, incoming missiles. And so he moved to uh, a place where they had train tracks. And the, the noise from the train tracks uh, made him feel safe, and he, he was able to sleep at night. So I, I guess, like, what are some of the textbook coping strategies, and then what are some of the, you know, off-the-grid uh, things that, that you found to help people? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, the general sort of coping strategies that, that are effective, you know, one sounds, you know, pretty mundane and, and, um, you know, sort of typical, but, uh, structuring your day, getting up at the same time, whether you're working, or you're not working, um, moving through your day with a schedule, with some momentum in mind, just that alone, it, you know, helps because people kind of get into a slump. They kind of get de- depressed, low mood when they, you know, they're motivated to stay in bed, not get up, have a shower, not get up and go out for a walk. Exercise, I think, is is key as well. You know, whether it be 30 to 60 minutes a day, whatever people can do, walking, some sort of physical exercise, uh, I think is very helpful. 
obviously we know about endorphins, but it really is is good for people's mental health. Um, you know, yoga, meditation, some sort of relaxation strategy is can be excellent um, for dealing with any sorts of symptoms. And it's, um, you know, it, it helps to sort of relax and calm the mind as well as sometimes help with better sleep. You know, getting a regular routine for sleep is important. You know, staying away from um, technology at night too late and in bright lights, TV, not having those, those you know, TV or electronics in your room if possible. You know, not having uh, alarm, a clock that you can actually see visibly. Um, those are really helpful. Uh, talking to someone. If you can't talk to someone professional, if you don't need to have, speak to someone professionally, speaking to someone that you trust um, can be very helpful for coping. In terms of things that are not as as typical, um, that's a great one that you mentioned. Uh, you know, in terms of, you know, someone not liking the, the the you know silence. I've had a I had a client like that. She you know we talked about her, you know, using uh, white noise. Um, using a fan, using earplugs, and she came back to me and said, no, that's not good for me. I can't do that. So she put music on, and for her, that was helpful. And, um, you know, didn't have to be sort of relaxation music. It was just what she chose as that she thought might be relaxing to her. Um, so people people can um, do all sorts of things. I, you know, I'm blanking in terms of what some of the sort of wackiest things I've heard that people do to cope. But um, I have someone who, a first responder who does, uh, she calls it slacklining, and I'm not even exactly sure what that, that looks like. But, um, you know, for her, this is, this is the thing. She has to do that. That works for her. You know, you know certain tar- types of yoga and meditation are, are not as good as, as this, this technique for her. So I think people should find what works for them as long as it's good coping, or adaptive coping and not maladaptive coping, like using substances, you know, drugs, alcohol, and things like that. Oh, yes. My buddy does slacklining. It's so huge. I'm fortunate that where I live, my balcony is facing a park, and people are constantly slacklining. And, and for those of uh, uh, the listeners who don't know, it's basically tightrope walking. Mm. But they do it uh, close to the ground. Much mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you start off like a few inches off the ground and uh, and the 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 rope has uh, varying widths, but it's just basically you know uh, tightrope walking from one tree to the next. Mm. Uh, that's how they hook it up, or one pole, or, or something like that. So it's just tightrope walking, but nice. slack line. Yeah, yeah, it works for her. She's a first responder, and this is what she does. <laughs> she that's her coping and resilience. <laughs> and you know, it makes sense because it. What I find for for like my anxiety, my depression, for people who can't meditate, is you if you when you put yourself in a situation that forces you to be present, or encourage I don't want to use the word force, but encourages you mm-hmm. to be present, but also challenges your mind enough so that you can't think about anything. Like when you're tightrope walking, you, you can't think about anything else because you're on a you're on a tightrope. You're trying to yeah. put one foot. Uh, and I get into a similar uh, state uh, hiking, but like when I do the hard trails because the, the rocks are slippery, they're rattlesnakes, uh, you, you know, you're, you're, you're having to look down and navigate the territory and make sure you don't right. go down the wrong path. So it, it, the nature, I mean, that's part of what I think is soothing about walking mm-hmm. in nature is that 
you have to be alert and you have to be present because you don't know what those sounds are and, and you don't know uh, it might be a new trail for you. So you have to be mindful uh, of where you're stepping. So that makes sense to select lining working for That's him. a good point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so for you to be in this kind of work, uh, you I would imagine you also have to find ways to uh, de-stress, recover, uh, kind of wash the day off of you. What, what are some of your, what you, you do, like a spa day? What's your thing? <laughs> I'd love to do a spa day, <laughs> but no. Um, you know what? A warm bath with Epsom salts does the trick for me. I also like just watching a movie or a miniseries, like a Netflix miniseries, and just binging on that, you know, a few episodes after I finish work. That actually is very relaxing for me. Um, spending time with my family can be really great. At the same time, there are times when I just really want to, you know, just spend time with myself, just, you know, sitting, reading, um, just focusing on me. Those for me are the best coping strategies and they work. And I also really like to exercise every single day. Um, I force myself to do it and have some time for breathing and just meditation, relaxation. For me, those are those are my strategies. I'm all about that Epsom salt bath. I'm always, I got two buckets of dead sea salt. Nice. I don't know if you ever did to try the dead sea. I'll be stepping up. I have it. Yeah, yeah, you got to step up your Epsom salt game. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. Don't be in there with the with the regular magnesium. No, no, get that dead sea salt and go ahead and marinate yourself in that and then thank me later. Um and then, of course, you got to like some, I like the, you got to get the non-scented. The scented stuff be giving me a headache. So, yeah, me too. Uh, me too. So don't fall, listeners, don't be falling for all of the, the soothing stuff that's out there. Some of that stuff is no bueno uh, for your cabeza. It's just, it's not good. <laughs> I agree. Um, now, can you talk to us about um, compassion fatigue? Because uh, this is something that I think that, a lot of people aren't aware of. It's like, were you just uh, feeling so much and how that can affect you? Sure. Sorry, get get some water first if you, you know. Okay. I had a sip. I'm good. Okay. Thank you. All right. Get, get some of that dead sea salt water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so compassion fatigue is, is, is interesting. It's, uh, and I, and I do see it a lot as well with my first responders, you know, whether or not they're dealing with trauma whether on top of trauma or they're dealing with it individually. But, <clears throat> you know, people who care for other people, they're, they call it the cost of caring. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's taking on um, what people's, people's emotional pain. Sorry. <coughs> I thought it was out. Sometimes it's taking on people's emotional pain and, um, you can you can actually feel for someone so much that it, it starts to impact you emotionally. And this can lead to compassion fatigue, which can also lead to to um, to vicarious trauma. It, you know, it's some some people will say that it's, it might be quite similar. But, um, you know, it's really, really being um, 
in tuned with someone and 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 picking up their their problems and start and that's starting to impact you emotionally as well so with that i would imagine um it it might require even a double dosage of all the things of of time off of exercise of because I, I think part of what when we think about a first responder i think about people who probably wouldn't even take all their vacations because they're so wrapped up in in trying to save lives. And, you know, they probably got like a million uh, mileage points because they don't, they don't go anywhere. They just uh, racking it up. Um, And so are there any, are, are there any differences for someone who has compassion fatigue versus a first responder who doesn't, is there anything extra that they should do or be aware of? I think I think just being aware that in particular if you have a first responder who's who's dealing with trauma and who's impacted by traumatic events I think I think you're right I think you almost need a double dose of everything I think you need to one be aware that what what you're doing and what how you're helping people is impacting you and so even just seeking your own help and talking to someone can be actually quite helpful and help to build that resilience and coping. So, you know, not just holding it and keeping it, but, you know, being able to to talk to a therapist or debrief with someone um, can sometimes be helpful so that you're not sort of holding all of that and taking it on. But I do think the self-care in, in so many ways can be quite helpful. So really, again, practicing, um, you know, the exercise and the relaxation and the adaptive coping and not turning to the maladaptive coping like alcohol and other substances. Yeah. Can you, uh, what are some of the maladaptive ways that uh, you, you find people are trying to, first responders are trying to cope and, and even like the more subtler ones? Because, I, I, for example, I, you know, usually, because uh, I'm, I'm usually going from thing to thing, meeting to meeting, meeting throughout the day. And I found that like I was trying to relax by just scrolling through my cell phone. And then I realized that wasn't relaxing at all. It's not soothing at all. So mm-hmm. there are things that we think that are relaxing. We think that are soothing that actually are keeping our anxiety levels up. I, so can you uh, yeah. address some of those? For sure. So you're right. Like sometimes it's looking at your cell phone. Sometimes it's, 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 be, it's being on Facebook or being on social media on a whole. Um, sometimes people think that's soothing, but then that can lead to other things that can rile you up and not help you become more relaxed. Those are the, the more subtle ones. Sometimes it's eating. People don't realize that you can, you can maladaptively cope through eating. So eating unhealthy, like um, you know, eating things you wouldn't normally eat, you know, a lot of salts and carbs and, and sugars, um, you know, binge eating at times, not eating at other times, so really not eating healthily. Um, I've seen that quite a bit with some of my first responders. Um, you know, again, the most most the more obvious ones are substances, drugs, um, you know, alcohol, you know, cannabis. Um, you know, sometimes people will self-medicate, what we call self-medicate. So they'll use these substances um, as a way of helping them to sleep if they're not sleeping well. They're not instead of getting something that's prescribed. Um, or help to bring down their anxiety or help them with um, their mood. And so, um, you know, people will find all sorts of coping strategies that aren't good coping. 
because in the short term they feel that they're helpful, but obviously in the long term they're not. I definitely use food as a coping mechanism. Mm. Uh, donuts. Yeah. I go straight to the, as soon as I, if I have two or three days in a row of donuts, I'm like, all right, Leo, let's sit down. <laughs> let's have a talk. What's, what's going on? Like what's I take myself, on? yeah, yeah. I take myself by the hand. Uh, like yeah. just share with me, what do you need from me? Where does it hurt? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. You see, you know, you've got the insight, you know that that's your thing, right? Uh. <laughs> God, sometimes having an insight is more painful. I, I, I almost wish I was naive. Like my mom called me the other day and, and she was talking about how she went to Denny's for pancakes. And the amount of joy that my mom had getting pancakes from Denny's, I was like, there's no way I'd be, I'd feel guilty. I'd feel ashamed. I'm like, so many calories. It's not good for you. It's not real pancakes. Cause I got too much insight. I know too much. My mom right. is like, no, no, no. My mom's a nine year old. She's just like, Right. pancakes good i eat and i'm like god i want that <laughs> i want that simplicity but yes, sometimes I, yeah you do yeah i listen to way too many podcasts for that oh, it's too late it's too late for me yeah no i hear you i hear and we all have our vice you know we all have our vices that we go to yours is donuts you know mine might be some ice cream and cake and you know we all have our things that are go-to and sometimes you do really have to sometimes you got to treat yourself i'm not saying you don't but sometimes you got to stop and you got to say, OK, like you said, you know what? Three donuts. Nah. what's going on? Right. <laughs> what am and, I and they're not even the best donuts. They're like those <laughs> 99 cent. I'm like, if it was like a gourmet, like it came in a box yeah. with a ribbon, I'd be like, OK, you deserve this. But right. not in a brown paper bag with. Yeah, it's not. Good. <laughs> That's your eating your feelings. Right, 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 right. I could always tell by where I get the donut from what, right. what, what I'm really feeling. Smart. Um, is, it, <laughs> is it a six dollar donut or a 99 cent donut <laughs> yeah exactly because, uh, but so with when when first responders are are contemplating uh ending their life or having suicidal thoughts what's the what's the usual thoughts what are the usual thoughts around it is it they, they don't feel effective they feel burnt out What's usually going on psychologically for them? Yeah, there can be a combination of things going on. Um, you know, sometimes it, it's about that. And sometimes it's actually more about what's going on for them personally. You know, sometimes things are not going because of how things have been going downhill at work. It's obviously going to impact your, your home life. And sometimes, you know, for example, your marriage is going down the drain. You don't know how to save it. Um, your, your partner doesn't know how to help you and they're getting the brunt of what's going on. So you're starting to get the brunt of that. And, you know, it might be that, you know, life's just really not worth living for me because, you know, work is tough. I can't deal with that. I'm having all these symptoms and then at home is tough. I'm not getting the support I need. I'm, you know, yelling at my kids, you know, and my friends, I'm just isolating myself. And, and sometimes that they can be more passive thoughts. It's like, it's not like I want to jump off a bridge or I want to shoot myself. It can actually just be sometimes I really don't feel like I can be here. I'm better off if I'm not here. My partner's better off without me. My kids are better off without me. But I really don't have the intention or the follow through to, to, to do something to myself. That completely makes sense. The, the, the home, the work, the family, because... A lot of what I found is I did a show for uh, police officers 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of these officers are very young. They they are uh, fresh out of high school. Uh, a lot of them uh, with a, a, a GED. And they get married very early. You know, they, they have right. this job because when they when you become an officer, you're thinking about that for life. That's not like a, a two-year thing. That's a, And so they get married. They, they're very young. And they don't quite have the coping skills mm. to handle what they're about to experience on the job and at home. I right. feel like it's too many transitions too soon. But yeah. I understand. It's like you feel stable. Uh, you got a job. You got a pension for a 1K. It's like, ah, you know, get the wife, get the kid, and, and mm-hmm. you're off and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're right. Sometimes it's too much too fast. It's too much pressure. You're too young. You can't, you can't handle it. You don't even know what you're getting into when, you, when you're doing this kind of work. And so when you get into becoming a police officer or you're a paramedic or you're a firefighter, you have no idea what you're going to expect. No one's really giving you the manual of this. That you're going to see this. You're going to experience this trauma. You're just going in sort of bright-eyed. I'm going to help people. You don't know what's coming down the road, right? And, I, and you know, I think the other part is, like, my girlfriend is always like, tell me about work. But, you know, the last thing you want to do is talk about work. And so that eliminates, mm-hmm. you know, 80% of relationship conversation on a, on a daily basis. So then, you know, what are you left to talk about? Right. Um, and I think that's the, the added challenge of the things that, most people usually share, we can't share because it's re-traumatizing. Exactly. And what do you do when you have two first responders married? Which happens all the time. You have two police officers, you've got paramedic and a police officer, you've got two paramedics, you've got a firefighter with a paramedic. And that I see that all the time. And then you've got both people who are dealing with their own situations coming together. What do they talk about? Right? Is it when when you usually hear about first responders talking about uh, suicidality, wanting to end their lives, struggling mentally, I would imagine it's you see it more in the first few years on the job, and then the last few years on the job, like close to retirement and going in. I don't know. I, I would just imagine it's the transitionary periods where they're struggling the most. That's a good, it's a good, good insight, but you know, you actually see it right in the middle of the career as well. And, and part of that is again, you know, even though people have transitioned, they're, 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 you know, they're steady in their career, there's still trauma after trauma. And then now you're dealing with cumulative trauma and you're in the middle of your career. You're not quite ready to retire, but you're, you're, you know, your things are kind of going downhill. You might be maladaptively coping. Your, you know, your spouse is, is kind of getting fed up and now those suicidal thoughts come, right? Come in. So it can be, it really can be, I hear you and I think that makes sense, but it can be really any time throughout your career, depending on what's going on in your life. Huh. That, that is fat. Is there, is there anything uh, in terms of treatment for PTSD that we haven't discussed? So treatment, uh, formal treatment of PTSD, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, military personnel or you're talking about police officers or other first responders, cognitive processing therapy is is actually one of the gold, uh, you know, star <laughs> therapies that we, we use to treat trauma. And and it, it's, you know, it helps someone process 
the traumatic events. Uh, you know, the therapist will help the individual write an impact statement about the events and and um, you know walk them through sort of the 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 event each event and help them with any sort of stuck points that they're they're struggling with on, on some of the events and how they process and how they they um, perceive the events. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, so there's prolonged exposure. That's another um, gold standard for treatment of PTSD. Um, again, with, with prolonged exposure, there, there are a couple of parts. There's prolonged, um, sorry, imaginal exposure where you're processing the event. This, is, this can be a little bit different. You're having someone recount the events while you tape it and have them go home with that tape and then, um, and then work through and process those events with the client as well as in vivo exposure. So if, if someone is avoiding different things, like let's say they're off work and they're avoiding going back to work, they're avoiding the work site, they're avoiding their colleagues, they're avoiding their uniform, you know, you, you want to set up a step-by-step hierarchy or ladder to help them slowly start to um, challenge those events from sort of least to most distress, distressing. Um, some people use EMDR. Uh, it's an eye movement um, uh, desensitization reprocessing therapy. So this is also um, um, how people, like helping people process. I think processing is the key when people have what we call re-experiencing symptoms like nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive memories that keep coming back to them. So these are very effective as long as they, they target some of those things and some of the, the avoidance when uh, and just uh, I want to peel back the layer or take a, a step back a second. Um, do you you talked about how usually at any point in your career you would see uh, uh, you could see suicide ideations or people struggling with their with mental health or PTSD throughout it. How does uh, rank uh, tie into it? Do you, do you is it is it ranged throughout the different ranks? For, meaning like. Someone who's new on a job versus someone who's higher ranking, uh, is it less, more, or is it kind of evenly spread out? That's a good question. I haven't, uh, I haven't really thought about that. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, I do think that rank um, can have an impact. Actually, I, I sometimes wonder um, when I see the younger you know, I'm not just talking about recruits, but younger sort of officers or um, younger first responders uh, who might have more sort of experience around education, around stigma, and, you know, how to tackle mental health and, and are quite familiar with this, I find that there can be a lot more insight um, which can be protective and can be helpful. You have some people who might be higher ranking. They might have been in, a veteran in the field um, for a lot longer, maybe it's sort of old school. Um, again, I'm not speaking for everyone, but, you know, in terms of really like you got to sort of toughen up, you got to pull up your bootstraps and there's no time for this mental health stuff. And so depending on sort of, you know, what culture you've been sort of oriented to, depending as you're moving up the ranks, this could impact your own mental health and your own perception of how you view things and even your own resilience in terms of how you deal with things. I think that, that makes, that makes absolute sense. Uh, because, you know, in a lot of the books that I've read about, uh, suicidality, they, they, a lot of them talk about hopelessness and, and feeling like things won't get better. 
but they also talked about, and I thought this was interesting, about effectiveness. <laughs> and I, I wonder if there's a, a point where a first responder starts to feel like they, they, can't, they aren't effective uh, on the job, and then that starts to wear on them of, why am I saving this person's life? I've saved this person's life. Especially if you're in an area where it's like a bunch of people who are addicted to drugs or homeless mm -hmm. and uh, depending on like what kind of calls you're responding to, I, I would imagine that might affect like what kind of calls are you responding to? Uh, mm -hmm. Are you just, um, are you, are you saving lives or are you just allowing somebody to keep going mm -hmm. uh, down the path that they were headed down? If that makes sense. You yeah, I mean? it makes a lot of sense. And I've heard that. I, I've heard that from some paramedics who have been in the field for a while and have said, you know, um, especially if, you know, they're not only dealing with trauma, they might be dealing with some some compassion fatigue or burnout. They might be a little bit, you know, more irritable than normal. They might feel like, well, depending on what calls they go to, you know, some of them are quite serious and some aren't. And it's not that you know, every call is, is not important, but they might feel like, well, well, why do they call? Like, why do I got to go there? You know, what's this about? How am I supposed to help them? And that that's part of sort of how they're already feeling and and that burnout and, and, and then just feeling like this is not why I got into this profession. This is not why I got into this job. I didn't get into this job, you know, to help someone out of their bathtub. <laughs> you know, I helped, I, I got into this job to save a life, right? And so, you know, you, you might even become a little skewed around how you look at the profession in some ways, depending on your call. That makes uh, so much sense. I was just telling my girlfriend last night that uh, when I was in middle school, when I was in college, and then uh, as a formal adult, I on, on those three different occasions, I've broken up domestic violent uh, violence uh, uh, incidences mm -hmm. where like the guy was uh, hitting on a woman and in the middle school I saw it and I grabbed this guy I was like you get off or you don't hit a woman and in college mm -hmm. I saw it and then and, and in all three instances the woman started attacking me wow and I can imagine I'm thinking about cops now and police mm -hmm. officers who are constantly going on the same domestic violent calls over and over again they arrest a the guy who beats up his wife or girlfriend mm -hmm. or even women there's a, a lot of i mean the, the 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 rates are getting pretty close now especially with this quarantine women are mm -hmm. starting to fight back um yep and and uh and then the spouse bails them out and then they're getting yeah. called every weekend to the same and that has to wear on you it's like i i, I separated you bought yeah. you peace and you brought this man back in what what more do I have to do? And I'm not trained, by the way, to really deal with domestic violence issues. Right. Absolutely. And then you feel like, what am I doing this all for? You know, I'm going to go back next week and we're dealing with the same thing over and over again, different day. And you're right. And I'm not trained to deal with domestic or mental health issues. And here I am playing therapist and getting involved and trying to help people who it feels they don't want help or they're just in a really bad cycle. Right. And that can be quite discouraging, and you can feel somewhat ineffective in doing your job. So are, are there, it, it sounds like the, the, the first responders need uh, additional support on some levels. 
uh, meaning that, and, and I know this is beyond your realm, but meaning that like there aren't enough uh, social workers to go into these mm-hmm. de- or de- or people who are trained in de-escalation or conflict resolution mm-hmm. or psych. I don't, I don't know, maybe send a psychologist into a domestic violence with, with, mm-hmm. with a couple bodyguards, you know, it's like mm-hmm. two cops and a psychologist show up now, now how do, you know, you know, what happens? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the solution is, but it just, it sounds like everybody needs a little bit uh, more help and, uh, yeah. and, 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 and take your vacation days, people. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know that rent is due. I understand rent is due and, and school won't pay for itself, but uh, take your vacation days because you, you just don't know how, how much long you're going to be here and you're going to burn out if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone needs time off. Everybody needs time off. And if you don't take those days, and like you said, sometimes there is a cost to it, but there's a larger cost, a bigger cost if you don't take it and you do burn out because then you're looking at being off. Then you're looking at disability. Then you're looking at, you know, less money and you're looking at other consequences and hard. And then it's hard to get yourself back to work. So if you prevent, it's definitely better than the cure. Right. Yeah, I, I would imagine you start making mistakes and you start getting into trouble. And yeah, it's like a, a dog that uh, you you don't let outside to play. It starts, you know, tearing up the furniture. That's right. So, and I, that's right. So, and I've heard first responders say that, you know, before oh, really? they went off. Oh, yeah, that they were starting to, you know, mess up. They could feel themselves not doing or they could feel, them, feel themselves getting quite irritable at their colleagues or their their, their supervisors. They, and, you know, they were called on it sometimes and they could see that, you know, their work was not the same. And someone sometimes it was them that they said, look, I can't do this or someone, either a partner, spouse or someone at work or a supervisor said, hey, pull them aside. This isn't working. What's going on? You may need to take some time off. You know, there's a documentary on Netflix called The Last Dance about uh, mm-hmm. the, the Chicago Bulls run, uh, championship run. I think there was like five or seven years or I don't know how many rings that they have. Mm-hmm. But what was fascinating is you know, uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, in the middle of the playoffs, uh, decided to go to Vegas for a night and, and party. He, like, they played the game. He got on a plane, went to Vegas, partied, drank, did all types of drugs, and then uh, came back a, a day later, ready to go. And really, <laughs> but he needed that. He yeah. that's how he's built. Like he he that's how much pressure builds builds up on him, and then that's mm-hmm. how much he has to relieve it. Uh, and uh, and then he came back and had like the best game of his life. Really, and, and so like yeah, the news was like, how could you go to Vegas? That's irresponsible, blah, blah, blah. But, but that's you know, what I was talking yeah. about earlier on in that you, you really have to figure out for yourself. Like there's a baseline of things to do. Take an Epsom salt bath, go for a walk, do yoga, right. all those things, yes. But there's also uh, a, a piece that you need and that only you can figure out for yourself. Yeah. It's not in the books. I agree. I agree. That's what I mean. I think you need to tailor your coping strategies and what it takes for you to get yourself back. You know, you need to figure it out, figure out what works for you. As like, like I said, as long as it's not bad coping, <laughs> I'm not going to promote bad coping in any way. But I think if it's within reason and it works for you, do it. It's not going to be the same. You and I are going to have different ideas of what it takes to cope, right? Is there anything that we haven't talked about 
Dr. Ferguson, that uh, you feel would be of value to the listeners out there? I think just that, I, you know, mental health and stigma, you know, I think about this, especially with first responders, and this is something that I always really advocate for, is, is ensuring that, you know, first responders have a healthy culture and a healthy environment that they work in, because whether they're at work or they're off work trying to get back to work, which is a lot of what I do is getting people back into work. If that support system and that, that healthy culture doesn't exist, you're putting them back into that or they're working in that and they're trying to cope with the everyday stressors and trauma, it, it's just going to make everything that much more worse for them. And so it's really important that, you know, starts from the top down that, you know, supervisors, managers, superiors are educated about, you know, mental health, healthy workplace, you know, so that people can feel comfortable, one, coming forward and saying, hey, I don't feel well, I need some time off, um, you know, two, just generally being able to cope at work and, and just need, just, just be able to say, hey, you know what, um, I need to, I need to, to go see someone or um, just feel open to talk about mental health and their, and their own struggles. No one says you have to get into your personal business. But at least you want to be able to feel comfortable knowing that you have that support that you need at work. And if people are off work, I'm, I find the people that go back successfully are the ones who have those kinds of environments to go back to. I, I you know, as you as you mentioned that, I, I realize uh, that part of the sticking point for some may be um, it shows up on their record and it might hurt them getting a promotion mm-hmm. Or elevation. I remember talking right. to an Uber driver, and I didn't realize that there are like four different levels of PTSD. And if you had a certain level, it it uh, uh, prevented you from uh, do- doing certain work. Is that is that mm-hmm. a thing? Um, I don't know if we we refer to them as levels uh, per se, but I do think that depending on how severe your symptoms are, and depending on whether you know, you're dealing with more of, of a, what we, we used to call chronic PTSD. It's not in, in the new DSM, but, um, you know, if, if you've had PTSD for a long time, you're dealing with the symptoms, you're struggling to cope, then I could see someone like that really struggling to be at work. I love it. Uh, Dr. Ferguson, how, how can people uh, reach you or what resources do you recommend people uh, reach out to for, 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 for more information? Uh, so CAMH, uh, our, our website, www.camh.ca, uh, we have lots of resources, whether it be around PTSD, just mental health, COVID, you know, just generally dealing with mental health issues. Um, Connects Ontario is another one that's, you know, local to us. Um, you know, there's a Canadian Mental Health Association is another one that we have local um, that is a great resource as well. Um, there's, yeah, there's a lot out there, but CAMH has, has a lot of resources on our website. So those are really great ways to get connect and and get help. I love it. And last two questions. Can you tell us briefly about the not suicide, not today initiative? Yeah. So that initiative, um, was really, you know, really came about, um, as you know, we were talking about, you know, being able to, uh, save lives. Um, you know, how do we connect with people in a way where we can prevent um, suicide? 
um, you know, as an organization, as a community. Um, ChemH is a leader in this. You know, we do a lot of research. Um, there's a lot of researchers that have been doing a lot of work around suicidality in terms of brain stimulation and a lot of different things and people who are um, working from on day-to-day dealing as clinicians. So um, as a leaders in this, uh, this initiative, you know, we just really want to be able to, to save that person, that one person, you know, how, whatever that takes. And then last question, because I always imagine that there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Dr. Ferguson? I'd say, what is it about your life? Like what, you know, I guess it's hard to say this in just sort of one word or one sentence. I think about how we can inspire and instill hope. Um, not promises necessarily, although we talk about promises to do everything that we can to make someone safe, but really helping someone search for what's good in their life. And I, and often, you know, you, you, people will say there's nothing, but there is something that you can, you can help people brainstorm around, you know, you know, that's why we have what we call preventative factors and protective factors, you know, protective factors of the things that we helped people to look for to say what will give you that hope because hopelessness is really the key to wanting to kill yourself. And so we really, we really look to where we can instill hope. And that's what I'm on. Thank you so much, Dr. Ferguson. Thank you so much listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you reaching out to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or the 1-800-273-TALK or the other phone numbers that are listed. There are international phone numbers listed in the show notes. If you live in Canada, Sri Lanka, Bosnia, wherever you are, there is someone that you can reach out to and talk to. If talking is too much, you can text. If texting is too much, uh, you can uh, send emails. There are so many ways for you to reach out. There are groups. There are online groups. Facebook is not just a, a, a tool to, 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 to like things. There are so many mental health groups for anybody struggling with PTSD. Um, and, and so it's about finding your tribe uh, in person and online. Use all of the resources. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Ferguson. Thank you so much, Leo. It was a pleasure.